welcome to the BPL podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Laser, and I'm here today with a special guest, Jason Reese. Jason, thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So Jason Reese is an assistant professor of city and regional planning at the Knowlton School of Architecture at OSU. His research, teaching, and professional experience focuses on social equity and city planning, fair housing, health equity, and asset-based community development. Jason is doing a, a program here at the library tonight titled Green or Red, Thriving or Declining Neighborhoods, The Impact of Discriminatory Housing Practices in Columbus. So, Jason, thanks again for coming on and coming yeah. in early to do the podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. So, can you give us some background on your education and career and how that impacted your research on these discriminatory housing practices? Yeah. Uh, so, I grew up in Hamilton, Ohio, uh, which is in southwest Ohio, um, old industrial city, um, just north of Cincinnati. And, um, yeah, I, I grew up in that town during a time period of a lot of uh, demographic change, uh, but also um, at a time period where, you know, I kind of saw what was in my grandparents' day a, a real economically powerful city um, really kind of disintegrate uh, during my childhood years. Um, and it's the same story of a lot of Rust Belt cities, uh, you know, jobs disappear, um, neighborhoods that were, um, you know, at one time stable, then become unstable. Um, you see like the infrastructure starts to kind of become compromised. Um, and you know, a lot of social problems and things like that that were there then kind of uh, become exacerbated um, because of what's happening with the economy and the city itself and the, the built environment. And um, you know, that always kind of left me with, a, I guess, a, a wondering, you know, what happened, right? Like, what, um, <clears throat> how does this city so different than the city that, you know, my grandparents would tell me about? Um, why do the neighborhoods look so different? Um, why are all of our resources on the other side of the river and not on the side of the river that um, I grew up in? Um, or that, you know, a lot of my peers I went to school with? And, and why were folks who had, um, you know, lower incomes, why were we on the east side of the river and why was everybody with wealth on the west side of the river? Um, so things like this just really, uh, I guess, drove me as I, I got into college and I found the field of uh, geography and um, went to Miami University uh, in Oxford, um, just north of, uh, of Hamilton and um, really great geography program there, particularly when you talk about urban geography. And suddenly I was getting a better understanding of um, what happened to my city, right? To, to understand kind of the dynamics of um, changes in the economy, um, you know, different types of policies and practices um, that were detrimental to communities like mine, uh, but beneficial to suburbs that would grow up between where I grew up in the city of Cincinnati. Um, and at the same time, you know, that still kind of understanding the why didn't really help me understand the question of what you do about it. Um, and that was really my motivation into getting into city planning. Um, you know, city planning looks at many of the same phenomena as geography does, um, but city planning is really much more focused on um, the thinking through what do we do to kind of change the landscape? What do we do to expand opportunity for folks and, uh, and create cities that are more just, more equitable, um, more sustainable? And so from there, I, I came to Ohio State 
uh, finished my master's degree in, in planning. I was a practicing planner for a while. I worked up in Michigan. Um, I worked for Ohio State University Extension and their community development program. Uh, so did a lot of work in Southeast Ohio during that time period. Um, and eventually found my way back to Ohio State uh, where I worked for a uh, applied research center um, that was really focused on issues of social and racial equity. And um, that you know, kind of brought me on and, and I created an opportunity for me to build out uh, research, but also a lot of community-based programs around um, thinking about uh, using city planning as both kind of a, a, a way of understanding a lot of inequality that we see in our, our society, um, but also as a, an approach that can um, at least create opportunities for better understanding what to do uh, to remedy some of the dynamics that we see. Um, uh, you know, fast forward a, another 15 years or so, I had done uh, quite a bit of um, work as a capacity builder nationally, um, both through my office at OSU um, and also working um, with the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Um, so over about a 15-year time span, I think I had worked on uh, some of these issues in about 30 states across the country at that time um, <clears throat> and decided to take a step back and uh, come back to Ohio State uh, where I joined the faculty in the city planning program, um, primarily just because I, I love teaching. Um, and I felt it was a good time to, um, to move into a space where uh, you know, I, I could at least share some of the lessons I've learned as well as um, dive a little deeper into some of the research questions that I was still um, fumbling with, even though I'm you know, 20 years into my career at this point. Um, so all that kind of comes back to the, the epitus of, of kind of this talk. Um, what I, my work here locally and in other places is really focused on um, is really just looking at kind of this geography of opportunity, right? That recognizing that we have stark differences between our neighborhoods um, and really trying to understand uh, first what created those conditions uh, and second, how do we, you know, how do we remedy that? How do we do that in a just way? Um, how do we do that in a way that doesn't just um, improve the built environment and bring in a bunch of luxury housing, uh, but really is looking at creating, you know, kind of um, accessible communities that are still affordable, uh, but have good quality of life um, and have a built environment that really kind of supports people's health and well-being. Um, so that's really kind of the, the impetus of my work. Um, the, the thing that I will kind of talk the most about tonight is um, the legacy of history. And, um, you know, the more I have kind of continued along with my career, um, I have really grown to deeply appreciate um, the role of history in um, helping us understand why the city looks the way it does today. And I think in the context of um, city planning um, or in thinking about just understanding uh, the city around us, um, you know, city planning history is, is, is very powerful because we modify the built environment in a way that leaves a lasting impact that often lasts for decades. So, it, yeah, it's, it sounds like it's this almost lifelong quest of, of, of knowledge in terms of city planning. And, yeah. um, you know, it, has, it sounds like it has very real ties to you growing up 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. The city is absolutely affected by yeah, these yeah. things. And so um, a one, one term that stuck out to me, and you, you mentioned it actually um, just a minute ago, was the geography of opportunity. Yeah, yeah. C- can you explain a little bit what, what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, from a, a general perspective, what we talk about when we're talking about the geography of opportunity is really um, recognizing that, um, first, that place matters, um, that the community you live within uh, has a, a pretty deep impact on your quality of life. And particularly when we think about kids, um, kids who are in those you know kind of prime development years, um, this is where we tend to uh, have a pretty good understanding of kind of the intense influence of the environment on kids in terms of their um, their development in regards to uh, education, um, their life skills, um, their social skills, uh, and and also their health uh, in in many different ways. From thinking about the quality of the air they breathe um, to thinking about how safe they feel in the environment that they live. Um, so that's really the first part of it is, is just respecting and understanding the role of place. Um, the role in neighborhoods and impacting our, our quality of life and in some cases life outcomes. Um, the second piece of this is is really kind of analytically looking at uh, differences in communities uh, across our metropolitan regions um, and really trying to analyze kind of the um, the depths of difference really in regards to different types of resources uh, that folks have really based on the neighborhood that they live in. Um, and you know, from that kind of analysis then becomes, you know, creates an opportunity to think about um, how we can invest resources back into places that, that need them, um, how we can kind of open up access to places through um, better transportation or through affordable housing um, that have those resources that, that uh, are, are very high quality. And so, um, you know, this notion of kind of a, a geography opportunity um, in, in some ways is very common sense, right? It's, it's an understanding of a, a reflection of kind of, you know, this old adage in real estate about location, location, location. Um, it, it's the reality that that's important, right? And that, that has a, a deep influence uh, on our lives. Um, I guess the other piece of that for me is, you know, in kind of my uh, work in the last few years is, is also um, deeply looking at uh, communities um, based on the assets that exist within those spaces. And often don't, you know, I'm not just referring to kind of financial assets. Um, you know, we could be talking about physical access assets, uh, things like parks, um, infrastructure, like libraries. Um, we could also be talking about kind of social assets, really powerful um, networks of community members uh, in you know the depth of relationships that exist within spaces um, that really foster a lot of resiliency for folks. And so, um, I, I consider this kind of a, a way for us to think about working within neighborhoods uh, to better understand both kind of um, what's impacting quality of life in these spaces, what are the differences between different communities, but then also thinking about, you know, how do you actually uh, then kind of create a more even um, playing board in terms of what resources people have access to in their communities? Absolutely. Yeah. And it sounds like, so this geography of opportunity, it's, it ranges all the way from, you know, neighborhood to neighborhood within yeah. a city mm-hmm. to you know, comparing cities across the U.S. And Absolutely. Really um, micro yeah. to macro. Yeah. 
Um, so uh, one, one thing that kept popping up one term as I was looking into things for this podcast was mm-hmm. redlining. Yeah. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what, what that means? Absolutely. Um, so, uh, you know, there's both a technical definition of what the, the origin of the term redlining um, and then I would say that there's a, a broader kind of social definition that we've now adopted um, that has been built off of this historical legacy. So I'll start with the technical definition. So uh, the term redlining actually comes from uh, the color scheme on a map, right? So um, in the 1930s, the federal government commissions a federal agency to um, assess real estate uh, neighborhood by neighborhood. Uh, in terms of the desirability um, and basically the, um, the stability of the real estate market um, at a neighborhood scale in a close to 240 cities across the country, I believe about 238. Um, so what happens then is that you have these very uh, intensive, um, you know, more or less research projects where um, neighborhoods are evaluated and scored um, by, on a host of kind of different metrics. And um, the end result of that uh, resulted in kind of a four-tiered scoring system for communities. Um, and this four-tiered system, uh, which was A, B, C, and D, uh, each had a, a different color on the map associated with it. So your A and B neighborhoods are going to be green and blue on your maps. Um, those are the areas that were, for the most part, um, deemed as very safe places for real estate investment. Um, the yellow areas and, and finally the red areas on the map, which received the lowest scores, um, those were areas that were deemed uh, basically hazardous uh, to investment. Um, and so this term redlining, uh, which really was about a real estate appraisal process, um, kind of uh, you know, takes its history back to this color palette that they decided to use on these maps. Um, <clears throat> and so what happens in the aftermath of these maps being created is that these maps become very important in the context of um, you know, kind of understanding where investment goes and where it doesn't go. And so this leads us kind of to the, the definition that we talk about more robustly when we refer to redlining today as a process where um, we are stripping investment and resources from particular neighborhoods. And we're doing that in a very targeted and a very direct way. Um, And so you'll hear, you know, traditionally when we talk about redlining from a historical sense, it was really about forms of mortgage lending um, and really kind of better understanding where um, mortgages would go and they would not go, um, which really had to do with housing finance. Um, But in the broader sense, um, when we talk about redlining, it includes a lot of forms of investment um, that seem to be, uh, where there seems to be discrimination against certain neighborhoods. Um, And this could be, uh, in a contemporary sense, anything from, um, you know, the establishment of financial institutions in those neighborhoods to, um, you know, just thinking about um, the rates of insurance people have to pay in particular neighborhoods. Um, and so the the flip side of redlining has um, kind of 
created a phenomena that we'll also refer to as reverse redlining. And this is a phenomena where, um, you know, it's, it's not redlining in the traditional sense where we're keeping resources away or keeping certain uh, lending products away from communities. With reverse redlining, we're doing the opposite, right? We're, we're often targeting predatory credit in uh, lending or financial instruments into those neighborhoods um, because of their financial vulnerability. Um, so it's by no coincidence then that neighborhoods that have been redlined are also the locations where you see um, a lot of kind of check cashing places. You're going to see a lot of uh, paid tax prep offices. You're going to see um, those, uh, you know, auto sales that say buy here, pay here, where they have a business model that's really built on unsustainable loan terms and repoing the car in six months. Um, and finally, in the context of the housing market, uh, what proved to be really damaging to a lot of neighborhoods again and kind of brought back this legacy of discrimination was um, the reverse redlining uh, in the housing market prior to the housing market crashing in 2008 uh, produced just an inundation of predatory uh, mortgages into these neighborhoods um, that were historically redlined. And so um, the same neighborhoods that had been stripped of credit for a very long time all of a sudden have these new mortgage products that were called subprime loans uh, being kind of forced into these areas and, and being very deliberately targeted into these areas. Um, and as people took out these unsustainable loans, um, they would fall into foreclosure, they would lose their home, um, and we began to see, you know, kind of a, a another wave of disinvestment in those neighborhoods. And so, um, you know, there's, there's both, I think, the historical roots of what redlining has been historically, um, but there's a, a broader recognition today that we just have some communities that um, there's still kind of a form of spatial discrimination, um, that, you know, they're not getting access to a lot of the resources, um, and in particular, the capital and the investment that we know neighborhoods need to stay vibrant um, and to, you know, more or less maintain their quality of life. Wow. It's, yeah, it's, it sounds like it, it runs very deep yeah. historically and it's, you know, it ranges all the way from yeah, absolutely. lack of access to resources and assets to then on the flip side, as you mentioned with reverse redlining, then all of a sudden targeting the same areas yeah, that absolutely. You know, didn't have those resources. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Let's let's see if we can maybe bring this to a to a local level. Yeah, yeah. And so fantastic. you know, since we're in Bexley and yeah. uh, you know, in a growing city of Columbus, so yeah. how does Bexley fit in into all of this? Yeah, uh, so Bexley has a fun, like a really fascinating history. Um, it also uh, is a city that um, I think, in some ways, was subjected to forms of discrimination, or at least. Um, some of the residents that moved into Bexley were subjected to discrimination. Um, but then it, you know, the city itself, um, you know, practiced forms of, of discrimination in terms of some of the housing policies. And um, it, it's a very unique space as well because, um, you know, what we see with Bexley is a, is a phenomenon that we see in a lot of cities in America where, um, you know, we have really kind of a, a, a tale of two cities, right? You can move um, a half mile, maybe even a few blocks, and in the case of Bexley, um, just crossing Alum Creek. Mm -hmm. And you see these tremendous differences in the, um, the differences in terms of the characteristics 
and I would argue probably the um, the resources between um, those two uh, different uh, neighborhoods that are situated not very far from each other. And so um, <clears throat> with the history of Bexley, I think it's important to recognize that um, you know, parts of Bexley have always been affluent, really, from the early days of Columbus's settlement. Um, and really, kind of, if you kind of are to, you know, look at uh, Jeffrey Park, <laughs> Jeffrey Mansion, and um, the Broad Street area, and, and as early as the teens, right, there's a recognition that um, kind of the very wealthy elites are, are building in this area, particularly north of Broad Street, um, east of Alum Creek. Um, but then, you know, that, that's, that's a relatively small portion of the city as a whole. And Bexley would have, you know, waves of population growth uh, after this. Um, and, you know, one of the things that drives this growth is kind of the, the movement of the Jewish population from what would be um, kind of really kind of more centrally located closer to downtown in Columbus and, and maybe, you know, some to some degree parts of the Near East Side. Um, uh, they would move east into the Bexley area. Uh, and this is not unusual. We had a lot of uh, folks who were kind of fleeing the, the inner urban neighborhoods at this time period, um, and in some ways just trying to get access to more open space, um, you know, a, a freedom from a lot of the kind of toxic uh, aspects of industry, which was uh, um, so closely associated with the downtown area at that time. Um, what, what time period is this roughly? Uh, so this would be, you know, basically the um, 1920s up until probably the, the Second World War. Okay. Um, really kind of when Bexley would see a very big population boom during this time period. And I think it reached um, actual city status in the 1930s uh, when it reached a population threshold to um, to make that uh, jump in terms of its identity. Um, so this movement of particularly the Jewish population east would be directly impacted by the development of another suburb to the northwest, uh, which is Upper Arlington. And so Upper Arlington and Bexley, to some degree, um, really grow at about the same time periods in terms of uh, their, their population growth, with the distinction being that um, Upper Arlington was a highly restricted community. Um, Upper Arlington had, uh, for the most part, um, the majority of kind of the initial uh, lots that are laid out in Upper Arlington are uh, have restrictive covenants placed on them. And those restrictive covenants bar any African-Americans um, and any Jewish people from moving into Upper Arlington, right? And so in terms of kind of thinking about a, um, a pathway to the suburbs, um, Bexley becomes a much more uh, open and accessible community from that perspective. Um, and of course, as a growing neighborhood, um, it had also a lot of great amenities. It had sidewalks, um, you know, good quality housing. And so it becomes a very uh, attractive place for that population to move to as they kind of suburbanize um, up until the Second World War. And uh, just jumping back one second, I, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but those covenants in Upper Arlington were still in effect until startlingly recently, right? And 
like yeah, they, the um, 80s or something. Is that right? Or uh, well, they they definitely had a legacy. So um, the uh, if you look at kind of the the so in the 1920s, about two thirds of between 1920 and about 1940, um, about two thirds of all the new residential um, subdivisions built in central Ohio. Um, had these restrictive covenants attached to them. Um, in the 1920s, the Supreme Court, um, although you know the restrictive covenants as a kind of real estate mechanism are openly discriminatory, um, the courts in the 1920s, the U.S. Supreme Court, basically allowed them to persist, saying that um, these covenants were just an arrangement between private real estate parties and the government wasn't involved, so they're perfectly permissible. Um, that would change in 1948 uh, when um, Thurgood Marshall would um, win one of his early uh, civil rights cases. Uh, when he wins a case in St. Louis, um, Shelley v. Kramer, which basically strikes down uh, covenants, and um, but with a caveat, with an asterisk. Because uh, what happens is the court basically says, we will not uphold these covenants anymore. So you can't go take your neighbor to court like you used to be able to for selling your home to a Jewish family or selling your home to an African-American family. But um, covenants as kind of a, a, a tool of um, harassment in housing um, would persist for a very long time period after that. Um, real estate interests and, and the National Association of Realtors really fought this Kramer decision. And um, you know, we would still actively see covenants really kind of promoted and used more as kind of a, a, a tool of, um, I would say, kind of racial and ethnic harassment um, for some time, really kind of going decades into the future. Um, so what we know eventually in 1968, um, we passed the Fair Housing Act. And the Fair Housing Act, you know, explicitly makes activities such as covenants uh, impermissible, particularly for those involved in the real estate industry. Um, so we have more protections. But even after the Fair Housing Act, up into the 1970s, um, we still see neighborhood associations basically um, kind of leaning in and harassing folks, um, really kind of using the same framework, really trying to bar um, people from coming into particular communities. And so uh, a case that was kind of famous locally in the early 1970s is a neighborhood association in Upper Arlington, um, which the state Supreme Court basically forced, uh, it forces the dissolution of. Um, because they're caught basically um, trying to in, in, harass and block the sale of a home to an African-American physician moving into Columbus during this time period. Um, uh, and in fact, the Neighborhood Association was trying to uh, intervene in a way that they could buy out the property underneath uh, him so that they could block the sale, therefore keeping the neighborhood segregated. Um, surprisingly enough, the person who ran um, that uh, neighborhood association was also on the state board of realtors. Um, and so this just gives you an idea how pervasive um, <clears throat> segregation was in the real estate industry as a norm. 
in really how they fought tooth and nail to um, keep integration from happening during this time period. And so, yeah, the, the covenants still hold a, a deep legacy. Um, if you are to look at deeds and various properties, um, you're still going to see these covenants often in, in the actual deed documents. Um, and they're going to stay there forever if they're not forcibly removed by legal act. Um, they're not... Uh, they're not a, uh, a legal statement that is enforceable anymore, but you can see the, the history of the legacy of them. Um, and I'll note, Bexley had its own covenants as well, often barring African-Americans from moving into the Bexley area, um, just south of Bexley in the Columbus neighborhood of Berwick, also a neighborhood that was kind of rife with restrictive covenants, um, really targeting the African-American community at this time. And so, um, you know, whereas, you know, in some ways the populations that would move into Bexley were impacted by racial restrictions in regards to housing and other parts of the city, the city of Bexley itself, um, or the, at least the residential properties in Bexley, would also be often discriminatory by the fact that covenants would be attached to them. Um, so when you look at Bexley today and you look at this divide between, you know, the east and west side of Alum Creek, this is the legacy you see, right? Mm -hmm. That, that um, we see, you know, really kind of deep lines of class segregation and racial segregation that are a current manifestation of this decade-long history um, or even kind of century-long history of discrimination. Um, and so that, in some ways, really kind of helps us understand um, why we see such stark difference in terms of Bexley and some of the surrounding communities. Uh, the last part of this, though, I think, which is an important epilogue, is to note that um, when we speak about redlining, we have to recognize that there was a relationship between redlining practices and uh, real estate discrimination. And so, um, one of the thing that that one of the things that's very clear when you read through many of these assessment documents is that the primary factor that often ended up um, ended up downgrading a neighborhood when these redlining assessments were done was the presence of racial and ethnic communities or the presence of just an integrated community. This was seen as a, a very scary thing, right? Um, <clears throat> neighborhoods with, with restrictive covenants, on the other hand, um, were neighborhoods that were often acknowledged positively in the assessments, right? And so if you look at this redlining map of Columbus in the 1930s, you're gonna see Bexley gets the highest score, right? Just like Upper Arlington, uh, just like Marble Cliff and parts of Grandview, parts of Worthington. Um, and this is a reflection of that, well, Bexley does have covenants that are keeping out um, the African-American community, um, as well as the wealth that had you know, begun to generate there. And so at this point, you then start to see kind of differences in investment patterns, right? So um, west of Alum Creek, we see disinvestment really take hold. Um, east of Alum Creek, we see more or less the housing market still functioning and, and, and performing quite strong. And again, that, fill, that builds into this legacy then of kind of why we still see a lot of um, housing distress, although that's changing now on the west side of Alum Creek um, versus on the east side, where in Bexley, we still see extremely stable housing markets and really housing market that's probably never truly gone through a period of decline mm -hmm. during this time period. Um, the, the last part of the story, I think the last epilogue of the story is that um, the next phase of what would reshape the boundary between the east side and Bexley um, would be the Federal Highway Act. 
which is an, another planning process where, again, we see um, those patterns of redlining kind of coming into play. Because if you look at Columbus's redlining map and you look at those neighborhoods that were redlined and you superimpose today's highway system on top of that, you really get to see then that those neighborhoods that were basically sacrificed for the highway system were those neighborhoods that were redlined, right? And the highways took great care to avoid disrupting neighborhoods that were highly rated, that were wealthy. Um, and you see this today if you are to look at I-70 and you see I-70 take this great turn right, to avoid Bexley, to avoid impacting Bexley. Um, but it didn't take any care in terms of the east side of Columbus, where it just barreled through mm -hmm. a residential area, um, destroying huge swaths of the east side during that time period. And so, um, again, now you, to add on these physical differences we see, we now have a physical barrier between the neighborhoods. And this happened all over the country. This happened elsewhere in Columbus. You can see this with I-71. Uh, if you look at the uh, comparison between Linden and Clintonville, um, you see this on the west side as well um, with uh, State Route 315 and how it has meandered through, uh, and you see this with parts of 670. And so it's, it's kind of a sad story of urban history that gets repeated over and over again, um, but it's really powerful in helping us explain why we still see these profound differences between neighborhoods. Yeah, wow. It, it, yeah, it runs so deep yeah. Um, yeah. in terms of the what you mentioned with the, you know, the lasting legacy of the covenants, um, yeah. the redlining, and then the, the physical barriers that Absolutely. you're now talking about with the highways. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, we're running a bit short of time, but I do want to maybe end on a hopeful note. Yes, um, yeah. So yeah. let's just, if you can briefly, maybe identify, you know, something that you see that is positive or hopeful in terms of, uh, city planning or development, maybe here in Columbus or even Absolutely. nationwide? Absolutely. Um, so a couple of things to note. Uh, in, um, the first thing to, to note is that, you know, if you, you look at these old redlining maps, you, you begin to see differences today in the context of neighborhoods that are, again, seeing a resurgence. Um, and you're seeing that in the east side today. So that stark disparity between Bexley and the east side um, still exists, but it's nowhere near as strong as it was, say, 20 years ago. Um, and that's because there's investment coming into that area. Now, that in itself is challenging, right, because we have to worry about people getting displaced. Um, but at least there is kind of a, a reverse of the disinvestment that we've seen happen for so long. Um, the other side of this, I think, which is uh, hopeful or optimistic from my perspective, is just um, broader awareness and efforts to really um, address the economic divide in Columbus, um, not only by the city of Columbus, but also some of the suburbs, um, also by the county. Um, in Franklin County, you just uh, put forth a, a very um, robust uh, poverty reduction plan where they acknowledge this history of structural racism in it, right? And um, they're, they're you know, doing this in an effort to align kind of contemporary things that they're doing as a way of remedying kind of these past challenges. And the piece of this I think is really important is just um, you know, continued efforts to support affordable housing. Right, in fair housing. Um, and so, you know, what I hope to see and uh, what there has been at least some, some movement towards in the last few years, and hopefully we'll see a lot more of in the next decade, is an understanding and appreciation that all communities need diversity of housing. And um, 
you know, we will see communities um, <clears throat> like Bexley or like Grandview, um, you know, hopefully in the future begin to explore things like um, how to support different types of housing that are accessible to people who are renters. Um, we'll see maybe communities throughout Franklin County um, work to kind of avoid um, or put forth legislation that keeps uh, the private market from discriminating against people who have housing vouchers, which is our form of affordable housing today. Um, and hopefully we'll just see more affordable housing built because we're recognizing how important that is in terms of the quality of life of folks. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I, in an opti optimistic note, I hope this is a turning point. Um, I hope that, uh, you know, this is an opportunity from us to learn from our errors of the past and to fully, I, I think, engage and recognize this history. And so, um, you know, hopefully if we had this conversation in another 20 years, um, it's a different landscape, right? Mm -hmm. It's not so tied to those past patterns of discrimination. So um, we can at least keep propelling ourselves forward in that direction. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jason, thank you so much for coming on the yeah, podcast. Thank you. And so it's fun. illuminating you know, all of these issues. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. Thanks for listening.